Hi, this is Brad Constantine, and you've reached the Book of Mormon Lecture Series. I've been teaching seminary and institute for the last 11 years, and uh, this is an attempt to do a deep dive into the Book of Mormon itself. I'm hoping that you'll find this uplifting and edifying. This is not an official recording of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, but every attempt has been made to be as doctrinally accurate as possible. So if you're ready for a deep dive into the Book of Mormon, here we go. Hi, and welcome back to the Book of Mormon podcast. This is going to be 3rd Nephi, Chapter 11. So now we're getting into the actual visit of Jesus to the Nephites. Uh, this is kind of the whole purpose here of the Book of Mormon, is to, con is to convince us that Jesus is the Christ. And this particular chapter uh, does that very well. Uh, this is the whole thing the Book of Mormon is coming toward, and afterward it all looks back to this. We have 30 pages of Christ's words here. That's more than you find in any gospel in the New Testament. I notice you have 28 pages in Matthew, 16 pages in Mark, 21 pages in Luke, and 24 pages in John. But in the Book of Mormon, we have 30 pages of Christ's teachings. We have a better source for the teachings of Christ. Of course, he says, I'm going to teach you what I taught them there. It parallels the New Testament quite closely, but very significantly, it gives more. So Joseph Smith has written the fifth gospel here. What a horrendous burden for a mortal to, to take that on. How would he dare do that sort of thing? That was by Hugh Nibley. We know from another reading that this isn't really a fifth gospel. It's a, it's an addition uh, and lots more information than that. All right, verse 1. And now it came to pass that there were a great multitude gathered together on the people of the people of Nephi round about the temple, which was in the land bountiful. And they were marveling and wondering one with another and were showing one to, the, to another the great and marvelous change which had taken place. And they were also conversing about this Jesus Christ of whom the sign had been given concerning his death. And it came to pass that while they were thus conversing one with another, they heard a voice. This is God the Father's voice, as if it came out of heaven, and they cast their eyes round about. For they understood not the voice which they heard, and it was not a harsh voice, neither was it a loud voice. Nevertheless, and notwithstanding it being a small voice, it did pierce them that did hear to the center, insomuch that there was no part of their frame that it did not cause to quake. Yea, it did pierce them to the very soul, and did cause their hearts to burn. Henry B. Eyring said, The still small voice is so quiet you won't hear it when you're noisy inside. Now I testify it is a small voice. It whispers, not shouts, and so you must be very quiet inside. That is why you must why you may wisely fast when you want to listen, and that is why you will listen best when you feel, Father, thy will not mine be done. You will have a feeling of, I want what you want. Then the still small voice will will seem as if it pierces you. It may make your bones to quake. More often, it will make your heart burn within you, which will lift and reassure. President Kimball said, The burning bushes, the smoking mountains, the Camorras and the Kirtlands were realities, but they were the exceptions. The great volume of revelation came to Moses and to Joseph and comes to today's prophet in the less spectacular way, that of deep impressions without spe spectacle or glamour or dramatic events. Always expecting the spectacular, many will miss entirely the constant flow of revealed communication. Verse 4, And it came to pass that again they heard the voice, and they understood it not. And again the third time they did hear the voice, and did open their hearts, or did open their ears to hear it, and their eyes were towards the sound thereof, and they did look steadfastly towards heaven, from whence the sound came. And behold, the third time they did understand the voice which they heard. And it said unto them, Behold, my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased, in whom I have glorified my name, hear ye him. 
On other occasions, the voice of the Father has been heard introducing his Son and commanding people to hearken to the words of the Son. This introduction is unique in that it adds the phrase, In whom I, I have glorified my name. No doubt this has reference to Christ's fulfillment of the atoning sacrifice that makes immortality and eternal life possible for mankind, which is the work and glory of the Father. That was by Millet McConkie. <clears throat> this is the crowning spiritual event in the Book of Mormon. Verse 8, And it came to pass, as they understood, they cast their eyes up again towards heaven, and behold, they saw a man descending out of heaven, and he was clothed in a white robe, and he came down and stood in the midst of them, and the eyes of the whole multitude were turned upon him, and they durst not open their mouths, even one to another, and wist not what it meant. For they thought it was an angel that had appeared unto them. And it came to pass that he stretched forth his hand, and spake unto the people, saying, Behold, I am Jesus Christ, whom the prophets testified shall come into the world. And behold, I am the light and the life of the world. Dallin Oaks said, Jesus is the light and life of the world, because all things were made by him. Under the direction and according to the plan of God the Father, Jesus Christ is the creator, the source of the light and life of all things. Jesus Christ is also the light of the whole world because his example and his teachings illuminate the path we should walk to return to the presence of our Father in heaven. Jesus Christ is the light of the world because he is the source of the light that quickens our understanding, because his teachings and his example illuminate our path, and because his power persuades us to do good. Jesus Christ is the life of the world because of his unique position in what the scriptures call the great and eternal plan of deliverance from death. Jesus Christ is also the life of the, of the world because he has atoned for the sins of the world. Continuing the verse, And I have drunk out of that bitter cup. <clears throat> At the end, meek and lowly Jesus partook of the most bitter cup without becoming the least bitter. <clears throat> By their very nature, tests are unfair. <clears throat> Continuing the verse, Which the Father hath given me. Christ's testimony of himself is regarding his atonement and have glorified the Father in taking upon me the sins of the world, in the which I have suffered the will of the Father in all things from the beginning. In other words, what he said, It is finished, thy will is done. Verse 12, And it came to pass that when Jesus had spoken these words, the whole multitude fell to the earth, for they remembered that it had been prophesied among them that Christ should show himself unto them after his ascension into heaven. I often say that when we when we attend a meeting and we see a, a general authority come, we usually stand. But I think when the Savior comes, we will kneel. Verse 13, And it came to pass that the Lord spake unto them, saying, He comes personally to them. He shows them the signs and tokens, and he introduces himself to every one of them. One by one, you see. He has no favorites here, and he doesn't introduce himself as a member of anything. There's that marvelous line in the Book of Mormon, the keeper of the gate is the Holy One of Israel, and he employeth no servant there. He will personally talk with you and bring you in. You are just as important as anybody else in the kingdom of God. And that was by Hugh Nibley. Verse 14, Arise and come forth unto me, that ye may thrust your hands into my side, and also that ye may feel the prints of the nails in my hands and in my feet, that ye may know that I am the God of Israel and the God of the whole earth, and have been slain for the sins of the world. Perhaps no more clearly and profoundly is it taught anywhere that Jesus Christ was and is a God, premortally, mortally, and postmortally than in the Book of Mormon. As he stands before the Nephites, we do not see him merely as a great moral teacher or prophet. Neither is he described as our elder brother, but truly and literally as the God of Israel, the very God in heaven, who Abinadi said would come down among the children of men and shall redeem his people. 
That was by Millet McConkey. Jeffrey R. Holland said, <clears throat> however dim our days or your students' day may seem, they, they have been a lot darker for the Savior of the world. As a reminder of those days, Jesus has chosen, even in a resurrected, otherwise perfected body, to retain the bet for the benefit of his disciples the wounds in his hands and in his feet and in his side. Signs, if you will, that painful things happen even to the pure and the perfect. Signs, if you will, that pain in this world is not evidence that God doesn't love you. Signs, if you will, that problems pass and happiness can be ours. It is the wounded Christ who is the captain of our souls. He who yet bears the scars of our forgiveness, the lesions of his love and humility, the torn flesh of obedience and sacrifice. These wounds are the principled way we are to recognize him when he comes. He may invite us forward as he had invited others to see and to feel these wounds, these marks. Verse 15, And it came to pass that the multitude went forth and thrust their hands into his side, and did feel the prints of the nails in his hands and in his feet, and this they did do, going forth, one by one, until they had all gone forth. M. Russell Ballard said, In that unprecedented appearance of the Father and the Son in the sacred grove, the very first word spoken by the Father of us all was the personal name of Joseph. Such is our Father's personal relationship to each of us. He knows our names and yearns for us to become worthy to, be, to return to live with Him. In the eyes of the Lord, there may be only one size of audience that is of, of lasting importance, and that is just one. Each one, you and me, and each one of the children of God. The irony of the atonement is that it is infinite and eternal, yet it is, it is applied individually, one person at a time. C.S. Lewis put it this way, God has infinite attention to spare for each one of us. He does not have to deal with us in the mass. You are as much alone with him as if you were the only being he had ever created. When Christ died, he died for you individually, just as much as if you had been the only man or woman in the world. Continuing the verse, and did see with, our, with their eyes, and did feel with their hands, and did know of a surety, and did bear record that it was he of whom it was written by the prophets that should come. There were about 2,500 persons who saw and felt his physical body on that occasion. Even at three or four seconds each, one by one, that would take several hours. If it took ten seconds each, it would have lasted seven hours. The passage we have just read is one of the greatest scriptural records in our possession. It is clear that showing himself involved more than having them merely look. It was sight, sound, touch, and a witness of the Spirit. That was from the Book of Mormon Symposium. Howard W. Hunter said, That experience took time, but it was important that each individual have the experience, that each set of eyes and each pair of hands have that reaffirming personal witness. Later, Christ treated the Nephite children exactly the same way. He took their little children one by one and blessed them and prayed unto the Father for them. Elder Holland said, At that invitation, the entire multitude went forth one by one, thrusting their hands into his side and feeding the prints of the nails in his hands and feet. Even though the power of the resurrection could have and undoubtedly one day will have completely restored and made new the wounds from the crucifixion, nevertheless Christ chose to retain those wounds for a purpose, including for his appearance in the last days when he will show those marks and reveal that he was wounded in the house of his friends. The wounds in his hands, feet, and side are signs that in mortality painful things happen even to the pure and the perfect. Signs that tribulation is not evidence that God does not love us. It is a significant and hopeful fact that it is the wounded Christ who comes to our rescue. He who bears the scars of sacrifice, the lesions of love, the emblems of humility. I think I read that one before. Elder Ballard said, 
This is Melvin J. Ballard. On this occasion I had sought the Lord, and that night I received a wonderful manifestation, an impression which has never left me. I was carried, this is a vision that uh, Melvin J. Ballard is having. I was carried to this place, the Salt Lake Temple, into this room. I was told there was another privilege that was to be mine, and I was led into a room where I was informed that I would, that I was to meet someone. As I entered the room, I saw, seated on a raised platform, the most glorious being I had ever conceived of, and had and was taken forward to be introduced to him. As I approached, he smiled, called my name, and stretched out his hands towards me. If I live to be a million years old, I shall never forget that smile. He put his arms around me and kissed me. As he took me into his bosom, and he blessed me until my whole being was thrilled. As he finished, I fell at his feet and saw the marks of the nails, and as I kissed them, with deep joy swelling through my whole being, I felt that I was in the heaven, I was in heaven indeed. The feeling that came to my heart then was, oh, if I could live worthy, so that in the end, when I have finished, I could go into his presence and receive the feeling that I then had in his presence. I would give everything that I am and ever hope to be. Verse 16, and, the, and when they had all gone forth and had witnessed for themselves, they did cry out with one accord, saying, Hosanna, blessed be the name of the Most High God, and they did fall down at the feet of Jesus and did worship him. Now, the word Hosanna means save now or save we pray. It was commonly used in ancient times in connection with the worship of Jehovah at the Feast of Tabernacles. Shouting Hosannas and waving palm branches was means of worshiping the Messiah and acknowledging his saving power. No doubt the Nephites were familiar with this conceptual meaning of Hosanna, but what it what is most important in this verse is that the people were so overcome with love and gratitude that they worshipped the very person for whom these ancient hosannas had been reserved. In the modern church, also the hosanna shout is used as a sacred means of worshipping the Lord and expressing our profound respect, love, and gratitude for him and his holy mission. The modern proclamation of hosanna are usually reserved for deeply sacred events, such as te temple dedications. Whether done anciently or today, it is a symbol of deep reverence for and worship of our Lord. And that was from Millet McConkie. Verse 18, And it came to pass that he spake unto Nephi, for Nephi was among the multitude. See how humble Nephi is. He's just with the, with the people. He's not out front. And he commanded him that he should come forth. And Nephi arose and went forth and bowed himself before the Lord and did kiss his feet. Elder McConkie, in his... Uh, in one of his testimonies here, and this might be his last one, yeah, this is his last testimony. I testify that he is the Son of the living God, and was crucified for the sins of the world. He is our Lord, our God, and our King. This I know of myself, independent of any other person. I am one of his witnesses, and in a coming day I shall feel the nail marks in his hands and in his feet, and shall wet his feet with my tears. But I shall not know any better then than I know now, that he is God's Almighty Son, that he is our Savior and Redeemer, and that salvation comes in and through his atoning blood and in no other way. That was Elder McConkie's final testimony right before he passed away, given in, uh, in the April Conference of 1985. Verse 20, <clears throat> And the Lord commanded him that he should arise, and he arose and stood before him. Jesus lifts us up to stand on our feet. And the Lord said unto him, I give unto you power. Now Jesus is giving new priesthood keys to have authority in the new church. Nephi was not being given any additional priesthood by the Lord, but rather he was receiving new authority to perform ordinances associated with the new organization that Christ established among them. 
With old things done away, Nephi was given power and authority to administer in the new things in a new dispensation with the fullness of gospel ordinances. Nephi, in turn, was then able to ordain, or in our terminology, set apart others to establish and set in order the new church. Continuing verse 25, that ye shall baptize this people when I am again ascended into heaven. Reading these verses, one may wonder whether Nephi did already did not already have priesthood authority and whether the ordinance of baptism was not already being practiced among the Nephites. The answer to both questions would be yes. Nephi already had authority and baptism was already being practiced. The doctrinal significance of these verses is not merely to reiterate the importance of baptism by proper priesthood authority, but rather to demonstrate the establishment of a new gospel dispensation among the Nephites and the accompanying ordinations and ordinances that a new dispensation necessitated. Of the, of the events described in these verses, President Joseph Hilling Smith taught, there is nothing strange in the fact that when the Lord came to the Nephites, Nephi was baptized and so was everybody else, although they had been baptized before. The church among the Nephites before the coming of Christ was not in its fullness and was under the law of Moses. The Savior restored the fullness and gave them all the ordinances and blessings of the gospel. Therefore, it actually became a new organization, and through baptism, they came into it. We have a similar condition in this dispensation. The prophet Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery were baptized by command of the angel John the Baptist. Several others were baptized before the organization of the church. However, on the day the church was organized, all who had been previously baptized were baptized again, not for the remission of sins, but for entrance into the church. In each case, the reason was the same. And uh, that was out of answers to gospel questions. It brings up the question also, when the second coming happens, will we all have to be rebaptized again? I would guess we probably will be, because that will be a new dispensation and a new organization. Verse 22, And again the Lord called others, and said unto them likewise, and he gave unto them power to baptize, and he said unto them, On this wise shall ye baptize, and there shall be no disputations among you. Verily I say unto you, that whoso repenteth of his sins through your words, and desireth to be baptized in my name, on this wise shall ye baptize them. Behold, ye shall go down and stand in the water, and in my name shall ye baptize them. And now behold, these are the words which ye shall say, calling them by name, saying, Having authority given me of Jesus Christ, I baptize you in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. In our day, we say, having been commissioned of Jesus Christ, I baptize you in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Some students have raised the question as to why the words of the baptismal prayer in the Book of Mormon differ slightly from the prayer listed in the Doctrine and Covenants. In this dispensation, the Lord has counseled us to use these words in baptizing a person after calling the candidate by name. And, and we say, having been commissioned. The only difference in the two prayers is the introductory statement. In the Book of Mormon, the disciples were counseled to say, having authority given me of Jesus Christ, whereas in this dispensation, we are told to say, having been commissioned of Jesus Christ. One, one possibility for explaining this difference is that the disciples in the Book of Mormon received their authority directly from Jesus Christ. Therefore, they rightfully could say, having authority given me of Jesus Christ. However, in this dispensation, priesthood bearers have been, given the prop, have been given the power to baptize from John the Baptist, who was commissioned by Jesus Christ to come to earth and restore this authority. Therefore, in this dispensation, we use the words, having been commissioned of Jesus Christ. And that was a quote by Daniel Ludlow. 
Verse 26, And then shall ye immerse them in the water, and come forth again out of the water. And after this manner shall ye baptize in my name. For behold, verily I say unto you, that the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost are one, and I am in the Father, and the Father in me, and the Father and I are one. And according as I have commanded you, thus shall ye baptize, and there shall be no disputations among you, as there have hitherto been, neither shall there be disputations among you concerning the points of my doctrine, as there have hitherto been. Russell M. Nelson said, As we dread any disease that undermines the health of the body, so should we deplore contention which is corroding canker to the spirit. My concern is that contention is becoming accepted as a way of life. From what we see and hear in the media, the classroom, and the workplace, all are now infected by some degree with contention. Well do I remember a friend who would routinely sow seeds of contention in church classes. His assaults would invariably be preceded by this predictable comment, Let me play the role of devil's advocate. Recently he passed away. One day he will stand before the Lord in judgment. Then I wonder, will my friend's predictable comment again be repeated? Verse 29, For verily, verily, I say unto you, He that hath the spirit of contention is not of me, but is of the devil, who is the father of contention. And he stirreth up the hearts of men to contend with anger one with another. Behold, this is not my doctrine to stir up the hearts of men with anger one against another, but this is my doctrine that such things should be done away. Behold, verily, verily, I say unto you, I will declare unto you my doctrine. The Book of Mormon contains the fullness of the everlasting gospel. While it does not contain all gospel teaching or practices of the modern church, it nonetheless contains the fullness of the gospel, in that it contains the Savior's own teaching of what constitutes his doctrine or gospel. Nephi and his brother Jacob had previously taught and testified of those teachings and ordinances that comprise the doctrine of Christ. Faith, repentance, baptism by water and by fire, endurance and faithfulness to the end, keeping the commandments and following the example of the Savior, these are all integral components of the doctrine of Christ. All of the prophets have testified of, that, of these same principles and ordinances that are central to the plan of salvation. Verse 32, And this is my doctrine, and it is the doctrine which the Father hath given me. And I bear record of the Father, and the Father beareth record of me, and the Holy Ghost beareth record of the Father and me. And I bear record that the Father commandeth me, commandeth all men everywhere to repent and believe in me. The plan of salvation was not originated by Jesus, but is indeed the Father's plan. What is the gospel? In the full and eternal sense, it is the plan of salvation ordained and established by the Father to enable his spirit children, Christ included, to advance and progress and become like him. Thus, it, it includes all things, both temporal and spiritual, and is as eternal as God himself. Every truth, every eternal, every eternal verity, every law and power, whether on earth, in heaven, or throughout the boundless universe, all of these are part of the gospel of God. He is their source and author, and all that is has been created for the benefit and blessing of man. That was by Bruce R. McConkie. Verse 33, And whoso believeth in me and is baptized, the same shall be saved. And they are they who shall inherit the kingdom of God. And whoso believeth not in me and is not baptized shall be damned. Verily, verily, I say unto you that this is my doctrine, and I bear record of it from the Father. And whoso believeth in me believeth in the Father also, and unto him will the Father bear record of me. And for, for he will visit him with fire and with the Holy Ghost. Uh, and thus will the Father bear record of me, and the Holy Ghost will bear record unto him of the Father and me. For the Father and I and the Holy Ghost are one. And again I say unto you, ye must repent and become as a little child and be baptized in my name, or ye can in no wise receive these things. 
And again I say unto you, ye must repent and be baptized in my name and become as a little child. The requirement to become as a little child to enter into the kingdom of God means much more than childlike innocence. It implies a submission to the will of the Father and a recognition of our total dependence upon the Lord. That was by Millet McConkie. Or ye can in no wise inherit the kingdom of God. Verily, verily, I say unto you, that this is my doctrine, and whoso buildeth upon this buildeth upon my rock, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against them. And whoso shall declare more or less than this, and establish it for my doctrine, the same cometh of evil, and is not built upon my rock, for he buildeth upon a sandy foundation, and the gates of hell shall stand open to receive such when the floods come and the winds beat upon them. That there is and can be only one gospel, one church, one plan of salvation, one true religion, is as self-evident as any truth known to man. There can no more be two true gospels or two true churches than there can be two true and differing scientific facts. Truth is truth, and truth and salvation and the gospel are, all are ordained of God. They are what they are, and they are not what they are not. Men either have the truths of salvation, or they do not. They either possess the gospel, which is the plan of salvation, or they do not. Anyone in heaven or on earth, in time or eternity, in Paul's day or ours, anyone who preaches any gospel other than the true one is accursed. Why? Because there is no salvation in a false religion. There is no saving power in a man-made system of salvation. And any man, whether mortal or immortal, whether man or angel, who preaches any system other than the very one ordained by deity, leads men astray and keeps them from gaining celestial salvation. Joseph Fielding Smith taught, now there are those who declare more or less than this. They will not repent of their sins. They will not accept Jesus as the Redeemer of the world. They will not believe that he spoke, to, that he spoke the truth when he declared unto the people that he was the Son of God and that he, became, that he came to fulfill the mission that was given to him of his Father to redeem the world from sin. They reject these, these things. They will not believe them. Hence they remain in the bondage of sin and cannot be redeemed because they will not receive the principles by which the salvation comes. There are many of this class that go around through the country, stirring up the hearts of the people against the truth, declaring that these things are not so, and that it is unnecessary for men to observe these principles and ordinances that are declared in the scriptures to be essential to salvation. They are destroying the faith of the people wherever it is possible. And then verse 41, Therefore go forth unto this people and declare the words which I have spoken unto the ends of the earth. And that was his admonition to Nephi there at the end. I bear testimony that these things are true, that this experience here among the Nephites of being able to see the Lord in his risen, resurrected condition uh, was a wonderful experience and something that we might all look forward to as well. And I bear testimony that these things are true and say this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. See you next time. Bye.